0: hi and welcome to another episode of forever quest i'm really excited today because we're having on for the
1: fourth time sean how do you feel about that i i want to start off by wondering how do you access that game show voice does it only it only comes every once in a while like that's maybe only the third time i've heard it so is it only for like big big guests when we have like big guess on then that's what yeah that's
0: do? kind of what it was i kind of felt like i needed to give it a little bit of the proper introduction you know
2: Bo-fi.
1: Bo-fi. ladies and gentlemen here he comes again like a general always carrying a master plan he sticks the load behind unlock doors inside he mend the spells and go ahead and find a place to find yeah, I can feel that. I'm well, I'm super excited. I get a little nervous, um, but actually, I've gotten to know this person a little bit better over the last weeks, months, etc., and um, so it's not so nervous now, I guess I could say.
0: Hey, Zade, how you doing, man? Welcome.
2: Hey, I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
0: So we've been in your guild now, the Faceless, for... geez, how long's it been here, Sean? It was, uh... We got to hit the raids at the end of Velius, so it's been a little over a month, I think. Five, six weeks?
1: Yeah, that sounds right. About, about five and a half weeks.
0: And I've been having a ball, man. I've seen so much content, had so much nostalgia wash over me as I saw some of these zones that jazzed me so much back in the day to finally break into and to be able to see them all rapid fire with you guys has been really exciting. Uh, I feel like my heart rate's actually split up a little bit right now just talking about it and Sean was talking about something the other day and that's gratitude and I want to thank you first off and everybody else in the faceless who's paved the way to allow people like Sean and I to join the guild midstream and enjoy all this stuff that you guys have perfected.
2: Hey, thank you very much. Yeah. I, I appreciate uh, your kind words. And honestly, it's been, um, it's been a blast having you guys there. I love trying to hit you guys up uh, during raids and stuff. I don't have, you know, too much bandwidth to do it while I'm like managing the terrible raid tool that EverQuest has, but I always try to chat with you too.
1: Yeah, you do an awesome job of that. It's One of my favorite things too is that you're constantly checking in with people and making sure they're okay. And I really appreciate that. It it makes things, uh, it's a different dynamic. Let's just say that.
0: But now I seem to, when there is a raid split, I seem to be in the raid. That's not yours. And Sean tells me I'm like missing out on sweet lore stories oh the whole God. time
1: and things like that. I'm telling you what it's true. So,
0: that's where you're gonna have to fill us in tonight, Zade. Are you ready to hit the lore deep tonight?
2: Yeah, let's let's do it. I mean, Luckland is my favorite expansion, and probably either my favorite or like my top two or three in all of EverQuest. So, all
1: right. Well, we'll start okay, okay. with. Uh, oh, so before we get started, I have to just explain this. Like, all of us who are listening have played EverQuest, right? We all understand that there's there's a certain thing about rating and especially top end rating and like that whole excitement about what's going to drop and on and on and on all the way down the line, you got to do things in the right order, et cetera. But having somebody explain to you, not only that piece of it, but why it is that way. And the, the before and after, and you know, people will ask random questions and, and they'll have an answer. It is, it is like living inside of the story. So I just wanted to set that up before you begin.
0: Alright, So uh, to let's let's talk to like the person out there who understands the lore the least to like onboard them. And I think and honestly, that's kind of like me. And all I remember you telling me about Lucklin is that like they had to get away from Kunark, these people who were being persecuted. and so they took this big chunk of earth out of Kunark. So now when you go into a Kunark zone, and you just see a big crater in the ground. It's that piece of chunk of earth that was brought up to escape this green mist. It was going to kill them all, and that chunk became the moon. Is that right?
2: Um, no. That that's kind of like a combination of stories because, like, uh, when it comes to Lucklin, basically every race on the moon has a different story for how they got there. No one really got there the same way. So the story okay. that you're talking about most closely is the Shisar, who were on Kunark. They, um, they were like the original dominant race on Kunark. They enslaved the Ixar and their capital city was in the area we now call the over there. When you go into the over there, there's that huge uh, chasm. Um, Sean will definitely know. Cause that's where you talk to one of the guys for the monk epic. Yep. You go up to him and you say, I am the one. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is where uh, Straja temple was and uh, the, all that ground that is missing is the mines of sra underneath in the basement there so yeah they uh they were a race that was created by Kazakh thul but they became super arrogant and they started traveling through the plains and eventually they killed some demigod we don't i don't think it's ever revealed who they killed um but emperor sra himself wields the uh, Sword of Straja, which if you identify it, or nowadays you just look at the lore tab on the item, it says uh, Stra's Sword of God Slaying so it kind of hints at it being the the very weapon that he killed the demigod with, and for this hubris though, and for them, you know, they stopped worshipping Kazakh Thule, uh, they were cursed. Kazakh Thule and uh, potentially some other gods came together and created the green mist, which was this, uh, well, I suppose, green mist that just floated across Kunark and it only killed Shisar. Whenever it touched them, it would kill them outright. Uh, so in a last-ditch effort to not be totally uh, obliterated by it, the wizard Vizdra found a way to transport them to the moon, to Lucklin.
0: So there? they go
2: there, and um, the first thing they do when they get there is they suck all the air, they create a vacuum around their temple so that the green mist can never threaten them again. That's how afraid they were. Then the emperor, also fearing a coup, because now Visdra, who saved the race, was a huge hero. He uh, imprisoned Visdra in the void, and that becomes the raid boss in the basement called Visdra the Cursed. And he continues to uh, travel the planes, but in an astral projection form, which is why when you go into his room, he's just kind of sitting there stupidly, and he doesn't spawn until you kill the blood of Sra. So when you kill the blood of Sra, it alerts him like something is going wrong back where his body is and he returns. That's cool.
0: And I did that raid with you just the other day, and that was quite an experience. And that's something I want to get to later as some other mechanics of that raid, because it was it was pretty cool.
2: Yeah. But that is just one of the the races that is on Luckland. There's, you know, each each race has a story about as in-depth as that. So like all the humans that are there. Have been there for uh, I think twenty centuries, um, or sorry, not twenty centuries, twenty generations is how long the humans have been there. So that's like uh, Shadow Haven, Sanctus Seru, and Catechostellum, Those three areas primarily. Uh, that was what we called the Combine Empire. And the original EverQuest lore it said that they created the spires that were used to teleport around, like the wizard spires. Later on, they retcon that and say that you know the Combine Empire didn't do that, um, but the Combine Empire basically was this big unified empire. Like, you know, in EverQuest classic, it's all racial-based, right? Like, the the races rarely intermingle. You got, like, Boomba the Big and Freeport and some Ogres and Niryak, and that's about it. Right. Um, But the Combine Empire was all the good races together. And then the leader of the Combine Empire, Safkada, was going to allow the Dark Elves to join the Combine Empire. And one of his generals was so opposed to this, um, he poisoned Safkata and started a civil war. So that general was the person we now know as Lord Inquisitor Saru. Mm -hmm. Um, In in response to Safkata being poisoned, the loyalists led by, uh, not Elsie Akata, because it was like, you know, one of her ancestors, because it's been 20 generations. Um, But one of the kata family led the loyalists, And they went to the great spires in uh, the Dreadlands, the huge ones um, that are there. Again, there's a monk epic mob there, uh, Brother Mm -hmm. Balaton. So you would definitely be familiar with that area, Um, Sean. Yep, yep. I remember that one. Um, So that's where Grieg, the Geomancer, teleports them to Lucklin. And I think, you know, there's something about like you don't, always have the opportunity to go to luckland and that's why so few people over time have done it when the goddess luckland first deposited her race the original luckland race on the moon she put a veil there to prevent other uh, races from seeing or detecting that there was a presence there and from traveling there Mm -hmm. so it's only during times when like the veil is weakened and there's someone sufficiently powerful and you have a sufficiently powerful conduit aka those massive spires in the Dreadlands. That you can really do it. So anyway, th- all those things came together at the right time, and Grieg was able to transport everyone there. But they were sucked in, not on the surface where they thought they would go, but instead to the center of the moon here at the Nexus. And uh, after they got there, they realized they couldn't leave. The, the same veil that hid the, the nature of this place to them, uh, from them, stopped them from leaving after that. So Grieg... Went on to try to find a way to leave. And he eventually, like, asked the goddess Lucklin for help. She gave him the knowledge of how to create spires, but she also drove him insane. So that's why Grieg is now like a malformed monster of a man in Grieg's End. And all his followers and the people who lived there with him have also gone insane. And the only, like, truly sane presence there is the servitor of lucklin wow. all right so
0: you mentioned that there's the goddess Tunair. when are we gonna or sorry the goddess uh, lucklin when are we gonna fight her like we're, we're working on our vextal keys is she at the end of vextal
2: no no so unfortunately and, and this is kind of conjecture i think but um the lucklin expansion originally was not finished so the rumor has always been that when you reach the end of Vexthal, you click one of these little totems, and it's supposed to send you to the plane of shadow, where you would then fight uh the goddess Lucklin. However, they never added the plane of shadow during this expansion, so you don't actually see Lucklin in game um until way, way later. Um I don't even know offhand which expansion it is, but it's it's uh pretty deep in the timeline here. You know what she looks like? Uh yeah, yeah. she's she's kind of like um just like a, a, a shadowy dark elf. It's hard to, I mean, it's like her skin is totally black. She's got white hair and there's like fog around her and all the concept art. Um, and the game is relatively true to that. It's kind of weird though, because a ra is supposed to be formed in the image of uh, the goddess Lucklin. And now when we see akelha ra we only see like this, this wisp form of her. So we don't see the true akelha ra but... We do see Atenha Ra, who is the dark shadow of Kelha Ra, and Atenha Ra does not look like Lucklin. So, you know, I guess that's just chalked up to like different design teams over a decade.
0: Is Atenha Ra the one that looks like uh, Dementors or Ring Wraiths from Lord of the Rings?
2: No, um, but many of the mobs in there do. The ones that, that you're thinking of are like the Itri or Vias. Um, basically, any Akivan who dies becomes like that Dementor, because um, the Akevans are technically immortal. So when they die in their, their normal form, they just become that robed form until they're able to uh, later on coalesce again back to their true form. Um, Have the Karens,
0: uh, how did they get to Lucklin?
2: Right. So the, the Karens were originally on Otis. The the erudites came, the high men came, they had their split where the heretics went to Panial, and the Vashir, the people we now know as the Vashir under the leadership of the dad of uh, Vakhereth, the original King there, they sided with the, the good guy erudites, but in some kind of a disaster, the weapon that eventually would go on to create the hole was accidentally targeted at the Vashir and blasted their society wholly to luckland as a physical big chunk of uh, Norath transported wait. directly to luckland wait they, they, <laughs> like a, like a cartoon cannon hits
0: hard that it literally like shoots out of the orbit of where it is and lands somewhere else
2: and the things on it survive this travel unfortunately that is exactly what the lore says yes
0: well yeah i I mean this is i'm thinking a cannon, right this is the magic of everquest we're talking about different types of weapons so maybe i'm not you know thinking
2: big enough here but at least it is like you know a physical transportation rather than a magical like the the magical energies teleported them there you know it's not like that it's like they were just like blasted there on a chunk of rock
1: the original races that were created on the moon
2: to do we
1: encounter them when we're there and what do they look like if we do?
2: Yeah, so the, they're the Akivan. You see some of them in Akiva ruins, but you see most of them in Vexthal. I think you could see a little bit of them in like Maiden's Eye still as well. But they're like the they, they're mostly people in robes with like two to four arms. They look kind of fancy and they have like little horns, unless you see one of the top end ones in like Vexthal. Um the the big boss of the expansion. Atenha Ra, who is the leader of the Akivans, she looks like, you know, you know, Goro from Mortal Kombat. Mm -hmm. She looks like Goro's girlfriend. Okay. Hopefully this Saturday, you guys will be able to see what I'm talking about, maybe, or maybe sometime during this expansion. We are four shards in at this point. It'll be fast, then. That's easy to wrap up the rest.
0: We just got one 20 minutes before recording. (laughs) we went to the uh we went to the gray right sean is that right yeah yeah Yeah. where you can't breathe right Mm -hmm. um and we go to the because now i believe on mischief the shards can drop off of any mob in zone but if you go to the mobs they used to only drop off of you'll get a higher drop rate so you prefer to go to that area so we went to the northwest corner started fighting or there were sun revenants there but there was somebody camping them asked them if we could join them they said do you want a shard? Just handed me one. I'm like, this is sweet. I love EverQuest. And then said, yeah, you can join us as long as I get all the meteor dust. I'm not sure what they wanted that for. Um, and so, yeah, we, uh, about 30 minutes later, Sean had his, we got one more
2: in the bank. That's awesome. The meteor dust is used for yttrium weapons, which are the only sort of weapons, which can harm Lord Inquisitor's Saru. Hmm. Is that different then than a Bane weapon? It is a Bane weapon. So Yttrium has uh, the effect Bane Seru on it, though it's not necessarily the same from a lore perspective as like the Emperor Bane.
0: Okay, and what, what is, is this where I've heard they put the mist inside of metal, this green mist? Is that what you're talking about with the Bane weapons? The um,
2: th- yeah, that's with the Emperor Bane. So remember, the Shissar are, are weak to the green mist because it was designed by Kazakh Thule to kill them. And when they teleported their society, they left that big chasm in the over there. That's all that ground that was there went into the mines underneath uh, the Temple of Sra. And that that ground brought with it some ore that had already been tainted by the green mist. So you can rarely farm um, the strange green metal down there. And when you combine it with a Shisar weapon, you create a corrupted Shisar weapon, which has the bane damage Uh, shissar can and can harm the emperor the emperor is impervious to all other forms of physical damage except for that green mist infused weaponry
1: so i happen to have gotten one of those pieces of green metal
2: is there someone that i might be able to talk to who could make a weapon for me you can make it it doesn't require any skill to make so all you have to do is go to um it might be any blacksmithing kiln now but you just take the the weapon and the metal and you just hit combine and boom, guaranteed success. It used to be that you had to do it in the kilns that were in, uh, in Shra Temple down in the basement. I'm not sure if that's still true. It might be.
1: Is there a weapon that you would recommend that I use for my monk to do that?
2: Yeah, 100%. You want to get a ULAC. So the weapons that you can use only drop off the Shasar Elites. The best way to camp them is usually to go to like the assassin room or the uh, elevator rooms in Shra Temple. So go okay. there and all the mobs in, in the elevator rooms pretty much can be a pH. And any Shissar Elite has a chance to spawn with a weapon. Anytime they spawn with a weapon, it will be a, a Shissar weapon. And then of those Shissar weapons, you could get a ULAC. So a couple hours will get, pretty much guarantee you a ULAC. Awesome. Thank you. But in a pinch, a hammer, you know, is almost just as good. Okay.
0: So there's a lot of mechanic type stuff I want to talk about in Lucklin, but before we get there. What else is it about the lore of Luckland that you really like? I don't want to rush past this, but I also don't know the questions to ask. So the floor is open. Tell us anything you like about uh, Luckland.
2: Well, the, the best thing about Luckland lore, in my opinion, is just that it, it so neatly ties up many of the loose threads established in EverQuest. So there are all these mysteries in classic EverQuest, um, like the Shisar are brought up in classic and Kunark, the Combine Empire you, you hear about in classic. Um, the whole you see in, in classic and, um, I mean, you can see the moon right away and and there are tales of spirit deities. And I think the goddess Lucklin is, is like very briefly mentioned in some texts, but you never really know what happened to all those races. And then you get to Lucklin, and the story is finally revealed. So I just think it's a great way to kind of tie up all those loose ends. And if there was any expansion for you to like actually just stop the content, I think uh, Luckland is it. It wraps everything up nicely. There's a lot of great gearing options for every class. And there's there's AA, so there's tons to do. It's a wonderful expansion for that reason.
0: It's really impressive if they didn't know all this stuff ahead of time. Like if they brought in a writing team to write the lore for Luckland, and didn't, they were like, okay, let's find a way to explain the whole, let's find a way to explain this. I wonder if it went that way or if it was, they had this figured out ahead of time and revealed
2: it slowly. I yeah. think, I think it's a like, you know, six of one, half dozen of the other, a, a little right. bit of both there, but it just works out super nicely because like, it, it, there are some really intricate relationships that propel the actions of the player base in Luckland, Like, the Vashir worship spirit deities, or they used to, right? They're a spirit-based society. So when uh, Vashir and other mortal entities die, you're supposed to become one with the spirit realm. But the Akiva, who Lucklin created here, uh, specifically, you know, they're like immortal, right? I mentioned that. So when they die, they become those shades. But when they do that, it corrupts the spirit world. And it makes it so that some of the spirits can't join the spirit world. Instead, they are destroyed. So it makes them like a natural enemy to the Vashir. And the Vashir, before they even know the Akiva exists, they can sense this corruption happening.
0: So I wonder if they would not want the Akiva to die then, because when they do, it makes their situation worse? Is that
2: what I'm hearing? I think it's it's mostly like just the existence, the continued right. existence <laughs> of the Akiva is I, a problem for them perpetually. That makes sense. Um. So the one of the old undead kings of the Vashir is the person who gives you the quest to enter Vexthal and slay Atenhara.
0: Okay, and that's the quest we're on right now. I like this quest a lot because it forces you to go see all the zones, and that's giving me a lot of nostalgia.
2: Right, that's running- it, it's like the the world tour of Lucklin.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for somebody who played. You know, Back in the day, again, we always say this, but to run through a zone and be like, oh my gosh, I remember that model. And the reason I remember that model is because I did this shard quest and I remember killing so many of those things back in the day. It's just seared in my mind. I've had so many of those moments in the past week.
1: That uh, plateau that we went to originally this morning was definitely one of those moments.
0: Yeah, so what's the zone in between, I want to say Scarlet Desert. It was in between the Gray and Grieg's End.
2: That is it. Yeah, that's where you get on the plateau, and you farm the Sun Revenant's there, or, or uh, one of the, I forget what the, the mob's called. Sun Revenant is the Gray, I think, though.
0: Nope, oh, you're right. There's uh, The Sun Revenant is the Gray, and yeah, we went up there. It was over camp, so we left, but... That brought back a lot of memories for me, too, because I remember kiting those stupid other Neanderthal-looking things with my Druid a lot up there.
2: Yeah, the Garangas and stuff.
1: We used to play Druid Ranger, and I would have to run behind the mob while it was chasing him. It was endlessly tiring.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And it was funny, back in the day, uh, we always thought that um, Rangers weren't that sought after. And but now going through it this time, we're learning how high their DPS is once you get all these new AAs added to them. Is it true they become the number one DPS class in Luckland?
2: Um, not really. If you had like a single mob that you wanted to race on, then the Ranger is your go to for sure. But if you're looking at like a full clear of a zone, oftentimes it is not the Ranger because. The Ranger has an ability called True Shot, which really amplifies their DPS for a bit, but it's got a significant, like, over-an-hour-long cooldown. Okay. Whereas most other DPS classes, just in their native state, put out more DPS than a Ranger, and then when they pop their discs, they can reuse them in, like, 30 minutes. So on, like, a four-hour raid, I guess there's not really any four-hour raids left, but on a a multi-hour raid, usually the Rangers will lose out for the overall parse, overall damage done. But if you're looking at, like, a single mob, definitely Ranger will will usually win if they have true shot up right now.
0: So talking about long raids makes me think of, like, when when we did break into Lucklin here, it is it is a bit easier on Mischief because people can get geared out, you know, quicker. There's a lot more gear flowing around. Um, but how exhilarating is it for you to, like, do that first clear of Vex thaw? Are you getting into it?
2: Um, uh, I don't know. I've done it so many times now that I don't know that I have the same like wide-eyed wonder I used to with it. Okay.
0: <laughs> what, 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 does do it for you in EverQuest? Is there something that, uh, that really,
2: uh, I don't know, makes you light up? It's really just like, uh, accomplishing things as a group, like the, I really like building communities, um, and I think that's why I got the same kind of enjoyment from streaming that I, that I do from leading a guild. Um, I, I just like seeing people come together you know, as a, as a group of friends and accomplishing something that requires a lot of coordination and uh, sometimes a lot of trust. Like when you're funneling keys to certain people, you have to have that trust that they're going to come back later on the back end and, and help you out too.
0: Yeah, that's that's huge um and when you start to talk about going through things like this it actually makes me think of uh can you talk about what you're uh, doing in your in your real life and your job and the development you're going through with people there uh the process you've been having
2: I, I can't talk I can't talk about it
0: darn it oh darn it sorry I can, no, okay. I can cut that part out too
2: oh that's fine you can uh, people can hear me say I can't talk about it it's, it improves my street cred if anybody from my job listens. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, you know, we're going through a, a leadership training course that I'm, uh, helping with and I am sworn to secrecy as to the contents and nature of that course.
0: That's funny. All right. How about, uh, how about, uh, how's, uh, life as a father treating you?
2: Uh, it's fulfilling. It's very nice. Um, you know, it definitely has impacted my game time. I used to be like hardcore. Now I play usually after uh, 7 p.m. once the kiddo goes to bed, I'll try to get in like an hour here or there and that that's kind of it. But my wife is very understanding and on expansion <laughs> launches I get, you know, a couple days off from daddy duty mostly.
0: Is there uh anything that's been surprising you about being a father?
2: Hmm. I yeah, I mean, I guess so. Uh before I was a dad, I thought kids were really stupid to be to be totally honest with you you know like they're not very interesting but they're a lot more interesting when they're yours Uh, that's funny (laughs) yeah 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 how old are your kids again do you mind telling us yeah i only have one and she is 14 months now that's what i thought okay yeah yeah
1: that's awesome um um, and what do you do or if anything and i assume that you do but what do you do how do you make up um for for when your wife does the two-day thing for you do you
2: bring flowers do you do extra dishes what do you do um yeah so it's a mix of things basically like whatever she wants but if you <laughs> notice right after luckland launch we went on a uh, vacation we uh-huh. went to disney world sea world universal Studios. so uh, we you know i was i was very busy and i didn't play everquest at all for a whole week and uh, mostly just was with family 24 7 and then you know like my wife and i are very equitable um sometimes like i'll just get a whole day where i just like be a huge nerd and and play games and then i pay her back like the next day it's it's all daddy time
1: i think that's really
2: do whatever she wants i think it's really good for people to hear
1: that because even i know for myself personally the fomo just the the idea of other people you know accelerating or getting past or whatever it might be you know you're a huge guild leader you're you're obviously a really good leader. And I think it's very good for people to hear that family is that important and taking time away from EverQuest is, is
2: something that you should do. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, there's a clear answer in what has to come first and and it should be the same for everybody. Sometimes, you you know, you see things and it becomes clear that it's not the same for everybody, but 99% of people make the same choice. And I'm, I'm honestly very lucky that my wife is so awesome about it because she's also like an EQ player back in the day a little bit. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know it just comes down to like you, you put in the time and, and be the best person you can when when you're available um sometimes my job requires me to travel too and I know we have to deal with that but you know you, you do what you can whenever you can
1: i know you haven't had to think about this yet but have you made a decision or talked with your um wife about when your child is old enough to start playing video games whether or not
2: they're going to play video games um, yeah, I want I I want my daughter to play video games. I think there's like some really good developmental stuff from playing video games that you can get. I do not want her to play EverQuest though.
1: <laughs> it's because of
2: the nature of the game, or the people that you would meet, or all of the above, pretty much. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like I. I wouldn't want her to get tied up in a game to the same extent I have. Now I've found it to be a very rewarding and enriching experience because I've made so many great friends and I've had wonderful experiences. It helped me develop as a leader before I had a career where I became a real leader and it helped me. I mean, you like if you're a kid, which I was when I started playing EverQuest, you learn like vocabulary words. Like it helps you in school because you're like not intro. You're not introduced to words like dubious and amiable um, as a 10 year old, but I was.
1: Yeah, ratio, even there's all kinds of words. Yeah, there's even the idea of typing as fast as you do has to be somewhat credited to playing this game.
2: Oh, yeah, it it really amped up my typing skills for sure. But all that said, I think uh, it would probably be bad parenting if I like let her play it because MMOs just, you know, they suck a little bit more out than they give, I think, unless you really get that enriching uh, friendship kind of stuff out of it. So, yeah. Got it. And also, you know, there's uh, in in the modern TLP EverQuest landscape, you're playing a game that's like over 20 years old. There's there's some odd folks out there that I wouldn't, you know, want my daughter around. (laughs) I completely understand that.
0: You know, I think another thing EverQuest did for us is it exposed us to the concept of social media early. Because even though it's not, quote unquote, a social media platform, it was people interacting with each other in a virtual space, you know, for... Uh, for the first time in in the way that it was done at least and you would sit at a camp with somebody and start talking to somebody and that that was really interesting and you could even think of like getting an item with value on it like an nft that we're dealing with now like are these things that aren't that don't have any physical tangible worth actually worth something and we were dealing with these concepts you know 15 years ago and so um i think everquest was also really bizarre in that way and unique in that way and obviously it, it's not unique now so many other games do it but it, it was one of the first to do it
2: yeah no i 100 percent agree with that assessment
0: uh, did you play the one that apparently came before it because every time i say it was first people say no it was ultima 2 or ultima online I'm, i don't remember
2: um, I didn't. EverQuest was my first MMO, but I do know that Ultima came before EverQuest. And if you want to really get on people's nerves to talk about how Meridian 59 came before Ultima. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, I didn't think I had played Ultima, but I then I looked up pictures of it. I'm like, oh, yeah, I did, but I must not have played it long. So it would show like a boat with a two on it and a boat with a three on it. And if they fight each other, you know, you better hope you have the one with the three. It didn't win all the time, but it had a higher chance on the roll. Did you ever play that, Sean?
1: I vaguely remember it, but, um, you know, the memories are so burned from EverQuest, like I said, falling out of Kelothan and dying and <laughs> the first time that night came. Like, I don't know if I could replace that with anything. Yeah, I don't think I could.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's like a magical element to EverQuest when you first play it. Um, it's just like unlike anything else. And if you look at screenshots of Ultima, I mean, come on, we, we there's a reason we're saying EverQuest was the first MMO, like... <laughs> all right um the
1: last
0: time we had you on i believe you were talking about us all coming together to play on mischief and that it was this big thing coming out um so now let's talk about that what that experience was like for you and i don't need you to talk about what it was like to get up to 50 because if anybody wants to hear that story it's great and it's on returned to forever quest with anthony uh, and the guys and so go check that out for sure but uh let's talk about some other aspects just what has mischief been like in general versus other tlps you've been on
2: well, um, in many ways, it's kind of like the server that you, you never knew you wanted. It, it's been <laughs> just so awesome. For one thing, the developers have been, um, especially in the early days, um, they were super, super responsive. Like, you would notice a bug, you would talk about the bug, and it would be fixed, sometimes in actual minutes.
0: <clears throat>
2: um, so it was, I've never seen that in EverQuest, really. Like, you, you couldn't even exploit things because they were fixed, like, live. They were just like hot fixing them in game, and no testing. Um, but it was just so cool because um, you know we, we've always wanted to have a new take on EverQuest. Like I always did, like SSF hardcore runs, and that was really just finding trying to find a new way to play uh, an old game that I love. And this is is that times ten. And uh, another thing is just that it's a wonderful server to play on as a person who doesn't have the free time they used to because the raid mobs drop so much more loot um, that you don't feel like you're really missing out by not being able to go so hardcore. I would say, like, on average, in Classic, it was ins- it was truly insane. In Classic, you were sometimes getting, like, 20 items from a mob. Um, but since then, you're pretty much getting four times loot, three to four times the normal amount of loot.
1: And how yeah. long is it until the next set comes out and do you think that what percentage of the, of the guild do you think will be um, fully geared before that happens in this um, expansion?
2: We'll have the important bits, um, but, but no one will really be best in slot. Like you'll have players here and there who are best in slot, but that's it. Um, because there are so many like little things that are ultra rare that you could get and are like a, a moderate improvement, but don't make a huge difference. And people will get those items. Um, unless you really want to open your wallet you're right. unlikely to that said you will go in more geared than any guild you've ever been in before guaranteed
1: yeah i mean i'm already i'm already there to be honest like it's only been a little bit of time and i think both of us have gotten quite a bit um with what we were able to scr- uh, scrounge together from the last bit of
2: the last uh expansion and then the beginning of this one Yeah, so I I benefit, you know, because I've led Faceless on a a bunch of servers at this point, so I'm able to look up some old logs and stuff, right? On Agnar, Faceless was the top guild in Velius. We never missed a single open-world raid mob kill, especially of of valuable targets. And at the end of three months of Velius, we were less geared than Faceless was on uh, Mischief, Um, a much more casual version of Faceless, who missed many open-world targets, and uh, only had two months, so less time in Valius. We were less, ge- we were more geared on mischief.
0: Wow. Yeah, to give people an idea, as you know, a newcomer, we like I said, we came in maybe five weeks ago. I can literally get a piece every night. Like if I if I play my cards right and spend my DKP right, you get you can get a piece every night, and that's like not that hard. Like if if you're frugal, you might be able to get two.
2: Yeah, I mean, at the end of Valius. We had guys who were like, Yeah, I joined the guild yesterday, and today they're getting best in slot gear. <laughs> what I, was it? It I, was I, the
0: Yelenax neck or something where I got one for like 15 DKP, and people are like, That's just ridiculous.
2: Yeah, literally only 15 because that's the minimum bid that we
0: allow. Right? Yeah. 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 Which is like, it's basically like a tenth of a raid night. It's like 10% of what you get in a raid night. I got this Yelenax neck, and people are like, That's just stupid.
1: Yep. I think I got right. the, the flayed leggings barbarian flayed leggings on that first raid that I went on to because there were no other monks that didn't have them and I, thought, I almost threw up I was like that's, that's just ridiculous
0: Okay so are we ruined now Zaid? You said this is the server we never knew we wanted and is it how hard is it going to be when I mean you know what I shouldn't even say that because the runway is so long why am I even talking about the end don't we have years and years and years
2: that this thing is going to be alive? About five years left
0: yeah, that's quite a bit of time. There's, I don't think there's any need to talk about what's it going to be like when it's over. That's way too much time left on the runway. Are they literally going to catch up to the newest expansion that's on live? Are they going to go that far?
2: Yep. Inevitably, we will eventually reach it.
0: And then what will happen to the server? Do you know?
2: Um, most likely, well, actually, we, we know exactly. Um, if they keep their word, we will be merged into the Verona Vi server, which is another server that has the same loot rules. It's not randomized like mischief is, but it it is uh, all tradable loot. So they have the same rules in that sense. And then we'll just be, you know, we'll just be on a live server, pretty much. Okay. But, so what are you looking forward to? Um, I mean, that's the dream. That's the dream goal: is to go from the beginning to the end. To say, like, I beat EverQuest. I think that's right. what every that's what every TLP guild ultimately aspires to do. Um, now Faceless has done that. But I have not done that. So that's my goal. I want to take this faceless to right to the end. And the only thing I think that would take me off of this server would be if um, another Celo-style server came out, which is basically a server which, which has a really uh, accelerated expansion release rate because that makes it easier to get to the end. Like Celo reached the end in two years instead of five and a half years.
0: And you can still... Get through the con- that seems tough though because you don't get the extra loot uh, as you do on a mischief, correct? But you have to go through it so quickly that seems really difficult. Like it would take a big commitment.
2: I would I would argue that the Cello server was the most hardcore EverQuest server of all time. Those guys had to raid a disgusting amount. Like they raided every other day for two years.
0: Oof. Nice. All right um well speaking of raiding so uh can you talk through i think sean and i kind of know at this point but uh we're in luckland now what is the raid scene if somebody's let's say somebody's starting a guild and they they're like oh what what should i have my guild do first then second and then what's the end of the raid scene like in luckland what are the tiers in luckland that you're gonna have the raid scene composed of
2: right okay so yeah there's Lucklin is, is kind of like the same philosophy of Valius, where there are different tiers, and I don't mean mischief tiers, but like there, there are obvious tiers of difficulty within uh, the, the raid mobs and the difficulty to even access the raid mobs. So you have some low hanging fruit, which would be like stuff in Umbral Plains, umble, um, Rumble Crush, uh, Zalniac, things like that, um, the Swarm Lord, which are easy mobs to drop. Then you've got like the next step up would be like Grieg's End with Servitor of Luckland, Grieg, um, Acrylia Caverns has evolved burrower. Those are all super easy targets that the most casual of guilds will be able to take out with relative ease. Test your you know test your skill on a little bit. Then you work your way up to like more tier two stuff. And I guess like the first real raid zone that a guild would want to try here would be like Akiva Ruins. Once you once you beat Akiva Ruins to include Shaven Atros then you're ready to attempt Sra Temple. Sra Temple has some some very serious challenges there uh, for your casual guild. So curse cycle could be challenging. Um, And then High Priest, though in DZ's High Priest is, is trivial. But if you did it the correct way, High Priest would be very challenging. And last and certainly not least would be Emperor Sra, who I would say is the second hardest raid encounter in the expansion. After that, you pretty much have Shah and Vexthal. Vexthal is after that mostly just because you need to kill Emp to get to, to Vexthal, but it's a relatively straightforward and easy raid zone. There's some mobs that really pack a punch there, but by the time you get in the zone, your tanks are going to have no problem. And it's an outdoor zone, so your clerics can all sit on mounts and have like 80 mana regen per tick um and i guess i forgot about lord inquisitor saru he takes a little bit of work to get to you have to do some questing you've got to get some banes but he's super trivial once you fight him
0: i want to dive a little more into a couple of these that i found interesting first of all when you go into acrylia caverns and you kill the underwater guy what's he called again
2: the evolved burrower
0: Yeah, which, by the way, that was a beautiful fight. I took a bunch of screenshots under there with the whole guild dotting it and uh, Feppin pounding on it. That was a a sweet, that was a fun fight. And then uh, the whole thing that happens after that on the inside of the castle of Acrylia Caverns where you have to go underneath and fight these guys in cages, is that part of the same event or is that a whole different thing? And can you explain that a bit to people? Because, Sean, you said that was your most fun event so far, right?
1: Yeah, I definitely had fond memories of failing miserably back in the day. It, it, was, <laughs> it was, it was, and it can be if you fail at that.
2: Um, you know, getting them killed—it's—it's it's no fun. But I'll let Sage explain. Right. So that event is a different event. It's called uh, Kadi Shah. It's got three phases, and I would say it's the hardest overall uh, raid event in Luckland. Um, but that said. No, yeah, I would just flat out say it's, it's probably overall the hardest because you could just easily blow it and mess up. But So the, the way it works is you, you go into this uh, jail down in the basement of uh, of Acrylia Caverns, and there's these two mobs there that are trying to complete a spell. It's like a chant that they have to do. They have to do it for, I want to say, 10 minutes. But when they start their chant, all these things try to stop them. So first are these things called spell jammers. They appear... Every minute or so, like three in each of the jail cells, three or four. The jail cells are separated and there's doors between them. So you have to split your raid force between the two jail cells. And you have to kill the jammers in like 10 to 20 seconds or else you, you lose a round. And if you go too long without getting 10 successes, you fail the raid right there. And it's blown for a week. Um, so while that's happening, at the same time, though, there is the border of death who spawns two floors above you and you have to kill him so you know what we do is we just grab him with one with a pet and pull him downstairs and we kill him in in the cages in in the jails but yeah you you kill him maintain all the spell jammers down if you do that successfully the warder of life spawns he's pretty trivial you kill him then a secret floor tile opens in a different room you go there and you'll find there are two vashir surrounded by enemies one of the Vashir is a fake. It's, it's a monster. The other one is the one that you want to save. So you want to identify the correct one and save it, killing all the monsters around it. And then when you do that, there's a few more waves of adds to fight, and then an Arcanist spawns. The Arcanist has an AE silence, so he will immediately uh, silence all your healers and stuff if they're not out of range.
0: It's huge range. That thing's a killer, man.
2: Yeah, it can be it can be rough, especially if you're unprepared. And uh, after <laughs> we that, we killed it. Yeah. Um, after that, a, a doorway opens up, and you have to go fight Kadisha. Shah. Kadi Shah hits pretty hard, but specifically, Kadi Shah has like the nastiest rampage in the expansion. You're almost you're almost just tanking Kadi Shah with two tanks, because she will shred uh, just about any ramp tank. That doesn't have defensive on or a DA hammer activated. Um, Even paladins with the DA hammer can often just get one rounded before they get the DA off. And there are other mechanics of the fight. The the fight is so complicated for the era that there are some mechanics that are just broken. Like you're supposed to have four adds that spawn while you fight her and you have to deal with that. And then the Warder of Death, when you're fighting him, there's supposed to be all these adds that are charging a pot. And if they touch the pot, you lose. So there's there's all kinds of other crazy things that are going on that we fortunately I guess get to ignore right now. Hmm. But Kadi Shah is a uh, famed, a uh, famed uh, vashir. I want I forget if it's, it's if it's a beast lord or a bar, but anyway, it was a really famous like legendary vashir who scouted out all of Luck- Luckland when they first got here. Um, he went missing, and. No one really knows what happened to him except for us. Once we, you know, we figured out if you get the the grimlings and you fight them, they drop these things called the Book of Lies, and it tells the truth about Kadi Shah. He was an experiment. He was captured by the the Shisar and they experimented on him to see if they could create a god because they wanted to turn their own emperor into a god. Ultimately, they failed in making a true god, but they did make Kadi Shah. He killed all of the the people who were experimenting on him, fled to the acrylic Caverns, and then created or um evolved i guess mutated the Grimling race which are now uh eternal servants of him and that is the kadisha event hmm.
0: i um i feel like such a noob sometimes i thought those two things were connected because they're in the same zone i thought we triggered it after killing the fishy uh, but you learn something every day, and I also um, I need you to explain something to me, Zaid. And I'm sure there's everybody out there is going to be like, how does he not know what exactly this means? When everybody's always saying the ramp tank, the ramp tank. At first, I literally thought it was a tank on a ramp, and I was like, what ramp is the tank on? <laughs> okay, so can you just explain to me and everybody else out there what a ramp tank is?
2: Yeah, sure thing. So you have your normal tank, your main tank. Everyone knows what that is. That's the person that is going toe to toe with the raid mob, but then Every now and then, instead of just a normal attack, the Raid Mob will do a Rampage. And a Rampage hits a second target. But there's a, a way to control who that target is. So the primary tank, the main tank, is decided based on hate, you know, taunt, aggro, all that stuff that we know all about tanking. The Rampage tank is dictated by the order of aggro. So that's why we always send the Rampage tank in first, because no matter who's on tanking duty, the Rampage tank will be the first-person aggroed. Um, Unless the first-person aggroed is the main tank, then it'll be the second person, and so on. Uh, So if you fail to set ramp, and like usually what happens is you'll fail to set ramp, and either the Clerics, because they're running the CH rot on the the main tank, or the Bards will be on ramp accidentally, and the mob will just roll through those those people, and then your, your raid pretty much wipes. But Rampage often doesn't happen... It doesn't happen as frequently as normal attacks. It happens like maybe every couple rounds. And the frequency which it happens is dependent on the mob. But Shah does it very, very often and hits very, very hard when she does it. He does it. So
1: you don't ever put the secondary tank or the ramp tank as a tank in the rotation as as far as um, whether or not the, the main tank goes down? Are they not
2: in the rotation? it would be like a last-ditch a last effort to just not wipe the raid. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Now, what we like to do in this era is paladins have a hammer that procs Divine Aura. We like to make paladins the ramp tank because ramp... Like, n- normally, if you cast Divine Aura on a tank, the mob says, well, I'm not going to fight him. That would be stupid. They just go to the next person. But a mob will attempt to rampage on a Divine Aura person. So a paladin with a DA hammer can just sit there and take no damage on ramp most of the time. Sweet.
0: So what would happen if a mage sent its pet in first? Uh, Would the mage be first on the ramp list?
2: Yes. And it it used to be name-based. So like the old way to cheese ramp, you know how when you summon a pet as a mage, it's always a different name? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, if you notice beast lords, their pet is always like so-and-so's warder. So it used to be you could choose ramp because it would always pick the same. It would always pick the name, right? So you would set it to a pet back in the day because it could be on pets back then. And it would be like so-and-so's warder. The warder would die. You would summon a new warder and it would immediately go back to that because it shared the name with the the oh. original target. So beast lords used to just defeat ramp. <laughs> nice. That's pretty sweet. Okay. The, uh,
0: The other raid that I went on with you and Sean, this is, you know, what we usually do on the show, Zade, as you know, is, uh, we talk about what we have done in EverQuest and what a lot of people don't know out there is that we don't talk about it until we're on this show. And so Zade, I got to go on a raid, uh, with you, uh, last week and we did the temple and we killed Emperor uh Sean had a family commitment, wasn't able to make it. But now, uh, Sean, I think uh, I could finally tell you about it a little bit. It was a lot of fun. Um, I want zay to do mostly explaining, but i can I can tell you a couple things. my experience going through it as first of all, I there was a lot of following people. That whole thing when you're like new to something and you don't know what you're doing, so you're just like following. There's a lot of that because there's a lot of running around. And sometimes you just stand in one spot and wait for somebody to run past you and be like, okay, I'm going to follow that guy. Um, and then the last room, uh, oh my gosh, it was beautiful. It was maybe the most beautiful room I've ever seen in EverQuest. Um, and then finally, if I was ever asked to run this raid, there's no way I could because I was very confused about the way we were running around. Maybe it's can be some explained simpler by aid, but I found... The whole sequence of who we were supposed to kill in what order and where to go to, my head was spinning.
1: Wait, before you answer, Zaid, just want to ask one question. Did you have your map open? I can answer the question for Dude, you.
0: the map is no, crazy. And no, yes, I no, don't understand not. layers, no, but I no, open this map and you teleport mm-hmm. all over the place and it looks nuts.
2: No, you didn't have your map open. <laughs> okay, Zaid, it's all you. All right. Well, uh, yes, yeah, so, so Sarah Temple. Um, there's a lot of running around because it's this big, sprawling uh, city, really, and the raid mobs are are split out throughout it. Now, it does seem a little chaotic how you run through, but it's because some of the mobs, when they die, trigger the next mob in the sequence. Hmm. And so you have to be like, you know, we kill this one, then we got to go kill that one on the next floor. Then we have to kill another one on this floor. And then we have to come back to that floor later to do different mobs, that kind of thing. So that's why okay. I can see a little, seem a little bit chaotic, but I I definitely agree. The Emperor fight is maybe one of my favorite fights in EQ, and I definitely think he's like he's easily my favorite raid mob. He's like the coolest in um, the room. I think I think it is still my my favorite room. It's got the best atmosphere of any room in EverQuest, hands down. Like when you just stand in the doorway and you see all the lights coming down from the ceiling, it's, it like woof, man, it gives you a chill the first time. All right, when are we doing this again? Thursday, is that right? Yeah, Sra is always Thursday for us. All right, I, I may, I'm going to commit this weekend and so, schedule it in. Sean, have you, have you done the Emperor fight before, or, or was it like a long time ago? I have never done it, and we, our, our guild never got there. So when you get up there, there are, uh, there's eight high-level snakes there sh- that, that uh, can do a ton of damage. In the center of them, there's this giant golem. It looks like a big gray juggernaut like the, from Sebulus. From um, and when you walk into the room, you realize that behind you is an invisible wall. You can't walk back out. And the moment you aggro them, a trap goes off behind you. So if anyone didn't come through when you aggro, the trap death touches pretty much everybody in the room. Oh, no. So anyway, you have to uh, come into the room. Immediately, all eight snakes and the, the Blood of Shra, the golem, attack. You have to get all eight tanked, locked down in some way, slowed, mezzed, what have you. Um, and then different ones can be mezzed. Different ones have to be off-tanked. They have nasty procs that make heals, do way less healing. And then uh, some can be slowed, some cannot. So you got to do all that in like one second, pretty much. And then you have to kill the blood. And then once the blood dies, there is between 90 seconds and like 10 minutes. And then Emperor Sra himself goes active. We say go active, not spawn, because he's like sitting there in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just not doing anything. And then he goes active. Um, and you still have to keep off tanking and messing those mobs, the other eight snakes, because if you kill them, they instantly respawn. Oh. So you've got usually two tanks, who are each tanking two snakes apiece. And then you've got one or two enchanters who are mezzing two snakes apiece. And uh, you fight the Emperor. He's got a a nasty like 4,400 damage nuke that will just lay tanks out. It also gives them a huge curse that makes them take less healing. You have to cure that and everything. So it's a fun fight. It takes a lot of coordination at first. Oh my gosh. So you guys were successful, I take it. Yeah, that was our, our third or fourth kill of Emp, and then we got a, another kill pretty much immediately after that was done. Nice.
0: Oh, and that's the fun part here. So we kill it, and then uh, which was awesome, and then all of a sudden, as everybody's leaving for the night, because that was the end of the night, and everybody's gating out or whatever, um, somebody says, hey, the Live World version's up too.
1: No. Uh,
0: let's kill it we're here the thing is we're only like half of us were there so half the people are running back half the people are there and uh of course as we're running there another huge guild starts to run there but we did it we beat them the other guild tried but they tried respectfully and everything was done right uh but we won and it was amazing
1: awesome i like to hear that that's that's sweet so it was a fair competition just you know happened to be a little better
2: yeah, yeah. So the, this other guild raced us there. They they got in the room. Some of them were killed by the trap. They dragged them through and resed them. And then, you know, we had a nice little break while we waited for Emp to pop. The the disadvantage of being the first guild in is, like, we had to off-tank the the four snakes and Mez the other four snakes, and we tanked Emp. Um, they just had to try to race us on the damage. But they, uh, you know, they had all their characters doing damage. We had all our characters doing damage, and we did more. So we won and they lost.
1: <laughs>
2: That's awesome. <laughs> So when it, when it goes down, then it, is it obvious because of who
1: has loot access to the loot table who won? Is that just how it works?
2: Oh yeah, so there's a, a few big things. First, you'll get raid experience. Second is there's a big yellow announcement that goes out to the whole server and it lists the name of the person in the winning raid. And then third is you get the loot. And do you know how that name that goes out to the server is assigned? Yes, it is the first person on the aggro list who doesn't drop off the aggro list for any reason. So, like if you get feared, you could be it it might skip your name. If you get killed, your name's going to get skipped. If you feign death, your name will get skipped. So usually it's a tank unless uh, something bad happens. Got it. Got it.
0: Yeah, that event was a ton of fun. I had a really good time. Um, Now on the horizon here. we have Planes of Power coming up. Now, you were telling me the other day, Zade, this is not your favorite expansion coming up, and, you know, I'm a big believer everybody can have their opinion. I have a very different one. I love Planes of Power, but maybe it's because it's the first time I ever did hardcore raiding. Huge fan of it. Uh, why don't you like this one?
2: It's hard for me to put my finger on it, but, like, first, when you go into Planes of Power, you progress rapidly to Plane of Time, and then all other content in the expansion is pretty much handily dwarfed by the quality of plane of time loot so you never do anything else again you can do elemental planes a lot of guilds will do like some of the eps but really you're you're kind of doing it for nothing like all the the really good loot is in plane of time so i don't like that second i'm not a huge fan of the art style they redid a lot of the the artwork for the gods away from like what the classic uh concept art was if you ever had like the kunark instruction manual Um, you could see all the gods and what they looked like. They redid it all, and it often looked kind of dumb. So that wasn't cool. And I think, you know, I'm I'm not a huge fan of us actually just rolling up and killing gods.
0: Yeah, I suppose uh it's a little bit of a again, it's like after the mischief server, what do you do after you just kill god after god after god? You know, maybe it's a little feels a little bit like
2: power creep. Right, yeah, it's like the the most obvious, you know, realization of that power creep. Like, where do you go from here? Though, they do try to cover it a little bit by saying in some of the lore that, like, when you go to a plane, you are experiencing just a small manifestation of the total power of the deity involved. You know what I mean? Like, oh, okay. they're, they're so strong. They can't even Im- impose their, their full power upon their plane. They can only put a little bit of it there. Well, that
0: opens up to what is the lore of Planes of Power, which even though it's my favorite expansion, it's probably, again, for the social reasons, I have no idea what the lore is. So, like, why are we even fighting these gods in the first place?
2: Right, yep. So Planes of Power basically comes down to this. There is a, a god, an ungod, if you will, called Zabuxeruk, and he really is Prometheus. If you're familiar with mythology at all, he's Prometheus. So he is being, in, he's, he's missing at first. You don't know even where he is. And the first goal is to, at first you're just kind of exploring the libraries of plane of knowledge. And you, you talk to some of the people there and they want you to investigate some things and help with some quests. And as they get to know you better and trust you more, they reveal that they are seeking Zabuxeruk. And really this whole city, New Tan and AKA plane of knowledge is a city that worships Um, So you try to find him, and you find out that he is, imprisoned in the plane of time and technically in like in the void and uh you try to find a way to gain access to the plane of time to go to the exact moment in time before he is permanently imprisoned so that you can stop his imprisonment and save him and all the gods are imprisoning sabuxeruk because he was translating and teaching the mortals how to read the language of the gods which the mortals could then use to become gods themselves.
0: Oh wow! Okay, so my simple mind likes to think just like who's the most powerful, who's less powerful. Zabuxaruk and Vishan—is there a comparison? Is v- is Vishan way above Zabuxaruk?
2: Yeah, definitely. I don't know that Zabuxaruk is actually personally powerful. Um, he just ha- he has seen the future that could be in Norath, and he is attempting to bring the mortals up to to divinity because he thinks it is the only way to save the world from what's going to come eventually
0: okay so then for us to get up there and and into the plane of time at the exact right time we have to go through this whole intricate pyramid like system of flags right can you explain this to the listener maybe listeners especially who have just started playing mischief maybe they were listening to this they started playing mischief are only familiar with keys. Now all of a sudden we're going to get into flags. And how does that work in this maze of flagging we're about to go through here?
2: Right. So flags are really, um, like, you, you know, you need a key to open a door. But a flag is meant to represent progress in the lore, kind of, you know what I mean? Before instancing and phasing and all that existed, you got flags to represent your character had completed some part of the the, the overall quest that is Planes of Power. Um, and that's really what it was. It had just, it says to the game, like, hey, this person has done this piece. They can go to the next stage, kind of like that. Um, now, each thing you do sort of plays a part. Like, at first, you're, you're helping out the, the people who worships a Buxerok. Like, you kill Protoxilus to cure two Bloodsabers who have gotten sick when they opened up a, a portal to the plane of disease. And they no longer worship Bertoxilis. And they're like, yeah, man, we're sick. So can you just go kill Bertox for us, the god of disease? And you're like, yeah, sure, we could do that. Hmm. Um, so it seems a little trite when I think about it. But uh, eventually, like, you you go talk to... So the, the evil gods, it's easy to rationalize, right? Why do we go kill them? Well, because they're evil. But then you're like, why do I kill Nathaniel Mar? Well, the reason you go do, like, the good gods, too, is because, like... Nathaniel Mar is supposed to know the language of the gods he could teach you to read the symbols he won't so you have to like just kill him and take the the knowledge from him <laughs> okay I think the only one who just straight up gives you the knowledge is karana when you kill Agnar and restore karana he gives you the knowledge um, but anyway all of, all of that leads up to discovering where exactly zubuk's is and like where they need to open the portal to the plane of time so that you can access it
0: now do you already have a plan in mind have you done this so many times that you know how to approach that flagging system as a guild is it like okay day one we kill uh uh we do plane of disease then we're going to be doing uh you know the clockwork guys right after that is is there the best way to go about it has it been perfected
2: uh I wouldn't say it's been perfected, but you have the broad strokes. Every single time you do this, you, you remember what you did last time, what did work, what didn't work, and you try to optimize it a little bit more. So I would say we're doing that. Um, I, Like I said, I'm not a huge fan of Planes of Power. In fact, I would say I really, really dislike it. So I don't expect I'll be, you know, we'll be like an incredible fast clear or anything for, for this one. Um, yeah, we'll... We'll have an order established, and it's something that we actually were talking about today. Like, what do we want to do? Do we want to go here? Do you want to go there? The flagging can be kind of complicated because, like, anybody can walk up and hail the astral projection and get a flag. So if the wrong uh, person ha- hails it, it screws up your raid because you're going to take, like, 70 people, right? And you're going to kill, like, Bertoxilus, and when you kill yeah. them, you get 36 flags. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yep. I remember that. So you Remember. sort of like split up your raid force into many smaller raid groups. The smallest ones you can do the content with, yeah. and every time you lose a few more people who didn't get flagged, and eventually yeah. you hope to get to Planet Time with enough people to clear it immediately at level pretty much sixty one. Okay, so
0: we need to talk about this. Uh, you've heard Zade about Sean's story about he how he drowned trying to get into the plane of time because he went to go get his water key and it took him months to even get in the raid i don't need to tell the whole story over again anyway
1: this is a big deal get getting shot this water key i'm hearing albus for a co-leader no
0: yes no absolutely not absolutely not (laughs) i'm in the marketing department i run the podcast i'm in the marketing department i once had to (laughs) i helped lead a raid in plane of time zade and this is you know back in the day and uh there's mechanics in there right when you're fighting these things and trying to get these stupid clocks to open there's important mechanics to make these things work yeah I volunteered to run one of them, What I didn't know what the hell I was doing. It was awful. I ruined it for everybody. <laughs> it was so bad. Anyway, that's we're not here to talk about uh, my EverQuest trauma, guys. Uh, let's get into what comes after uh, the planes of power then, because it, it, are we getting more excited then at this point? Are you getting more excited for what you see coming over the horizon? I think it's Gates of Discord and Omens of War. Yeah, yeah, I'm really uh, I'm really excited for Gates of Discord. And it, it, why is it? Is it the mechanics change? Is it because you get to play a new type of character?
2: I think the zones are super cool. The mechanics, I think, continue to improve. I would say Gates of Discord, Omens of War, and Dragons of Norath are kind of like this in-between area and in EverQuest. Like, classic Through Planes of Power is what we always think of when we think EQ, you know what I mean? You stand there, you punch a mob in the back, Someone is in the front, and then the mob falls over and gives you loot. And then things start to get more complicated, more scripted, and gates and beyond. And then after Dragons of Norath, you get to Depths of Dark Hollow, which is where we enter like the the new hev quest. And raids are much more mechanically involved. It requires um, a lot of experimentation if it's your if you're like doing it for the first time, or if you're doing it years later, like we do on TLP. It it requires some uh, dedicated reading to read, read up on strategy. What I mean, like, and uh, uh, audio triggers and things like that. Like, there, there's an event in uh, in Salt Dark Hollow. There's two events, really. There's one called Hatchet, where you have to do all kinds of crazy things or else you die. Um, like, you have to duck or jump or or look away, or you have to run in between his legs. And then there's another event called Performer, where like they will say a line of text to you, and you have to respond with another line of text very quickly or else the whole raid could just fail
1: um, we should probably leave Albus at home for those seriously right. <laughs> what
0: are you talking about I got my immobilized ring now Sean I'm gonna be able to do mm-hmm. all of it I almost got the oh Zaid, man I saw something drop on the raid the other day it was this uh, mace that had group shrink are you kidding me I need that thing
2: we gotta save up those DKP
0: I know. I tried to do 220 DKP, and for those listening, that's that's only like a raid and a half. That's like a night and a half of raiding. I thought I'd be able to get basically this, you know, top top end item, but was it wasn't quite enough. <laughs> I gotta save them up, baby. All right. Um, last time you're on uh, Zaid, uh, we talked about a little bit about philosophy too. We got into determinism. De- de- can somebody say that for me? I'm a little amped up over here determinism. Sean, what's it called?
1: Determinism.
0: determinism. Determinism. Thank you. Um which, you know, I like to think about that stuff and honestly, that's one reason why I think Sean and I, Sean and I get along well is cuz uh we both having those types of conversations with each other. Those those deeper conversations and I'm happy to hear that uh you do as well. So, I thought it'd be fun just to dive into that a little more.
2: Okay, yeah.
0: Um So one thing I like to think about a lot is this thing called the, uh, the Fermi paradox and the great filter. So I'm going to go over them quick, uh, case, uh, you haven't heard about them before, or, you know, listeners haven't. And I think it's just a fun thing to discuss. So the, the Fermi paradox is, you know, if you do the math, there should be, you know, billions of life forms out there in the galaxy, right? It's just inevitable, right? Or that's what. I've heard from people smarter than me, but then the question is: the Fermi paradox is then where the heck are they, right? If there's so, if there's just bound to be a galaxy teeming with life, then why haven't we seen any? And then it brings in the concept of the great filter. And the great filter is that any life form in the world will eventually reach a great filter, which is its opportunity to destroy itself. That every society will hit a point where it has the opportunity to destroy itself, whether it's you know, with uh, like the the nuclear bombs that we made back in the forties, or maybe it's something we make a hundred years from now, which is a 3d printer, which one person can make a nuclear bomb. And so the idea is that everybody faces this filter. And the reason I like thinking about this idea is what if we're going through that filter now? And what if we have a chance to make it through? I like those kinds of ideas. Like that we're kind of like in this game, you know what I mean? Right.
2: So, what? First of all, do you think there's life out there? Uh, yeah, I think the odds are that there is life beyond our planet.
0: Okay, and uh, do you think uh, chances are they've they are already aware of us if there is?
2: Uh-hmm. I would say it's possible, but much less likely. Okay, and then how
0: about? Uh, the idea of a filter—the idea that the smarter uh, life forms become, they're bound to find a way to destroy themselves. Does what do you think about that idea?
2: Seems very logical to me. Um, but okay. that said, you know, we can't help but look at things from our own kind of like human perspective, um, and you know, it's it's possible that alien life would be just that, right? So alien to us that we couldn't comprehend how they live their cultural differences because we have a lot of cultural differences just here right so they might be a society that due to their evolution their very nature they do not have a very high likelihood of destroying themselves through war or climate or any other means
0: well that's interesting that's like uh maybe there's a completely different frame it's kind of like um how we're talking about nfts or or how i I brought them up earlier how they they're becoming a thing now you could describe that something like this has value to somebody and they might think you're crazy but it's all about the frame it's all about the environment you live in right as your environment changes uh then all these rules and and dynamics could could definitely change as well curious i I brought this up to you uh, offline the other day you jumped in and chatted with us a little bit while we were going after shards which i that was awesome by the way. thanks for jumping in that We had a really good time. You mentioned that you have a a favorite philosopher. Can you tell us a little bit about him
2: uh yeah, so my favorite philosopher is is Hegel, and you know I'm not as academic as I was uh back when I came to that <laughs> that opinion but yeah hegel basically uh the thing I like about him is is he has a his philosophy basically says you know you look at things from the perspective of thesis antithesis synthesis so you'll have um Things that appear to be opposites, and they give rise to a a better, more purified version of, of the two things. And a common example is like before there was society, we had freedom, right? Like it was just cavemen running around doing whatever, whatever they got in their heads. And then you start forming groups of people, and it's kind of like it's sort of indisputable that forming a society is a little bit less free. Than pure anarchy, right? Because you have the social contract, right? Right. Um, but from those two opposing things—the complete freedom—and then suddenly having rules, or even like tyranny, where you have like no freedom—you you gain the synthesis, which is a special type of freedom that you only have in society, which is like the freedom to interact with disparate groups of people free of fear right um because like they can't the social contract tells you that they cannot just walk up and club you in the skull um and so that is the thesis antithesis synthesis uh kind of in in a common easy easy to understand example i love that idea he, he applies that to everything he says everywhere there are two opposing things you can apply that
1: I'm I'm actually really glad to hear that we have military leadership who thinks that way. It's, it's extremely uh, enlightening to me to, to hear that.
2: Don't worry. I don't do anything important anyway. So. <laughs> That's funny. Um,
0: all right. So how do you find then that you Enjoy Hegel because you enjoy figuring out how to inject that into your own life. Like, if you find that you're faced with a challenge and you're trying to figure out how to be the yang to its yin, how to like battle it, are you is there a way to fold that into your own life? Like, how do you do it in a way where the outcome is better than the sum of the parts or better than the war of these two opposites that went up against each other?
2: Uh, yeah, it, I think it always spoke to me because I was always into like. The idea that there has to be a, a level of balance, you know what I mean? And things would yeah. naturally balance themselves out. Like, um, honestly, a, a good example we could look at it on the Mischief server, right? When Mischief formed, we had this one massive super guild, Faceless X in Virtue. And it had 900 members and a bunch of different personalities. And like, it was just untenable to have all that under one roof and it split up into two opposing forces because there had to be balance, it was totally unbalanced on on a server, where just basically everybody who wanted to do a certain style of rating was in one place, you needed, you needed it to split up. So it wasn't so one sided. And I think both groups of people have become better by doing that. Because when we were one gigantic fat guild, we could all be lazy. And like you didn't have to have logical rules. You didn't have to have a reason to care about players because like you have a thousand of them, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And when things are overly represented, you just don't care. So when you split that into two forces, um, two forces with similar goals, especially then suddenly there is a race to produce greater efficiency to inspire team loyalty and, and all that. And I think both guilds are enhanced by the split.
0: Okay, so going back to the the uh the the idea with Hegel about putting two things against each other and you know making a better outcome because of it, is this then sorry, let me get my head around how I want to say this here um is this encouraging change? If you're into this philosophy, and if you're a believer in this philosophy, is the idea then that change is generally good as long as thought is put into it to create that correct pressure against what exists now to create something new? Are you the type of person who likes change these days?
2: Um, I, don't, I don't know if I like change. Um, I, I don't think it makes a judgment call on whether or not the change is good or bad. But what to does say is that that process is inevitable. I and see. if you don't see it, you often just have the wrong perspective because there's so many forces at play. If you're looking too, you know, if you're if you're staring right at the tree, you don't see the forest.
0: John, did you get into specific philosophers? I know you you did some studying yourself.
1: I did in college. I did, but it's been mm, two decades close to it since I studied philosophy, I loved it uh, for all the same reasons that <clears throat> um, Zaid is is bringing to the table. Um, I do remember I do remember going through some of um, Kant and I remember uh, Descartes and I remember Socrates and Plato, of course, um, most vividly, I suppose. Well.
0: It, I don't know. I know one thing that you always come to me with, and I don't know if you got it out of philosophy or not. is just that the more you learn about people or, or about how people are different, you learn how people are the same.
1: It's what I come back to. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I, I think that if the best way to understand somebody, there's two ways. One, you have to, you have to know where they're, <clears throat> where they started or where they come from, where their, where their base is. Other, otherwise it's really difficult, which can be a very big challenge to begin with but if you can understand that um th- i think that gives you a big chance to 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 have a good understanding of the person
0: all right well zade i want to have a better understanding of you let's talk a little bit about where you came from if you don't mind uh, i know you can't talk about what you're in your work right now and i don't mean to get too personal if you don't want to go down this road no, no i feel like happy having... Getting to know each other a little bit. I I remember you telling me about when you learned to play EverQuest, and you were definitely younger than us. And so I've learned about a little bit of that period in your life. What about even before then? What what got you amped up as a kid? What were you into?
2: Hmm, I don't know. I just, uh, I guess, growing up, I always wanted to uh, test myself against things. Like I wanted to pit myself against whatever was the biggest obstacle in in my view. And And where'd you uh, grow up? I grew up originally in Pennsylvania, and then I moved to Orlando, Florida. And do you... anywhere anywhere near Evansburg? Mm, no, I was in Scranton. Okay, I got family out there in Pennsylvania. It's a, I mean, it's a great place. I I miss it a lot. Wait, uh, is but... that
0: like is that like the show The Office? Is it that Scranton, or is that just a made up place?
2: The very same one. Really? <laughs> yep. Thunder Mifflin. I always it, all, you know, it comes up every time I mention it. That's funny. <laughs> do you go back there? Uh not often. No, it's not a nice area these days. Do you have like a big
0: extended family? Like do you have like big extended Christmases or anything like that or is your family kind of spread out?
2: No, it's it's kind of like just me and my mom.
0: Nice. And how's she how was she an influence on you? What'd you get from your mom?
2: She, I would say she taught me like empathy and to like care about people want to be conscientious and think about how, what you're doing or saying impacts other people. And, um, you know, I'm not always the best at being that person, I would say, to be totally honest with you, but I always think about it and I try to, uh, especially if I have a negative interaction with someone, a lot of times I can bring myself to come back and like, you know, apologize about it. I think you're pretty good at how you speak to people. It's noticeable
1: that you, you consider your words. Your, your words are considered and thoughtful.
2: Thanks. I think of like, you know, there's just one, one example with my mom that always sticks out to me. Uh, we lived in kind of like a, a seedier area of the town and we went to a restaurant one time and my mom hung up her coat on a coat rack. And I said, mom, what if someone steals your coat? And she says, well, I guess they probably needed it more than I did. And I try to have that perspective without letting people take advantage of me. Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm kind of with you there. You you don't, you don't open the door to let it happen to you, but if it does, you know, have some empathy, put yourself in other people's shoes potentially.
2: Right. And I'm i uh, I'm really big on like, it's funny from a person who's in the military. Like I would consider myself like a pretty nonviolent person. I guess I'm, I would say like, I'm, I'm pretty restrained. Like, um, unless it's efficient, unless it's work, I prefer not to have anything to do with violence or even, or even really non-friendly disputes. I like, I like, like rivalries and positive competition because I think that brings out the best in people and some people don't understand that they view like competition is always like toxic. Um, but yeah, I try to avoid having actual enmity with people whenever possible.
1: I think competition can be one of the very best things Jeff and I have always been slightly competitive in an extremely positive way.
0: Yeah. Are you kidding me today? When I, he said at the very end of our session, right before we started recording, he said, how many shards you got? I said five. He said, what the, I have four. How'd you get five? I'm like, oh, never mind. I have four. He's like, good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry to interrupt you there Zaid. I get excited.
2: It's all good. But yeah, I mean that's kind of, you know, I I came from like a, I would say like a a very low income background, which means like, you know, I, I appreciate I guess I shouldn't say it means this necessarily, but studies have shown and I find this to be true in my own life is that I have, you know, I form and highly value uh, social bonds, things like that, communities. I I know exactly what you're talking about. <clears throat> um I
1: I come from the same Uh, background and can attest to it as well.
0: What's your relationship with uh, money now after growing up poor? Um, How do you feel about like spending money, for example, now that you're older and now that you have some more means?
2: You know, it's going to probably sound a little uh, stupid, I guess, but I, I just don't think about money very often. I am so fortunate that I have an employment you know, I have a career where I, I just, I'm able to afford the things I care about without thinking about money at all. I don't have to like check my bank account before I buy anything, um, and I kind of like it that way. I'm not like someone who's brilliant with investing or anything like that, uh, but you know, I grew what? up, I grew up like not having enough to sometimes like to eat. So, um, I think part of like my drive. And when it comes to my real career, because I I try to work, you know, I'm, I'm competitive in my real career much more than I am with EQ. And part of my drive is like, you always feel like you are one failure away from being back where you started, where you grew up. <sighs> yeah, <laughs>
0: that's funny. You, you act like because that's how I think Sean thinks, and I don't know if that's how he thinks, but. You know, Sean, when he he moved out to California, like a couple decades ago, and when he moved out there, he lived in the shittiest little place, like no money, shitty little place, just scrapping by to try to just make it work right after moving out there. And now he has money. Now he's successful two decades later, but you try to get the guy to buy a candy bar and he's like, it's a little expensive
2: here. I bet you could get it more across the street.
1: (laughs) Right. I can't help it. That's never going away.
2: Yeah, but that thriftiness, you know, is
1: is very valuable. It is. It shows up in my kid too, and I don't mind it at all. My dad had it too, and I I think it's valuable, especially
2: today when things are at your fingertips everywhere you go. Yeah, I wish I had that a little bit more. I've always just been like a little, just a little bit like. I don't want to say devil may care. I guess like I worry about things a lot, but uh, the way I respond to anxiousness is i like step off the diving board (laughs) that's cool i like that
0: okay so what are the qualities uh you know as the world changes and wherever you think the world is going what are the qualities you're trying to instill you know in your daughter or in any children you have in the future to to be prepared for this world because i know a lot of the people listening to this are people who played when they were younger, but now they're in families you know and so I think a lot of people can you know glean stuff from this these types of conversations what What are the values you're trying to instill and in the skills that you you know want to instill new in how do you want your daughter to fit into the world ideally
2: uh I think the the number one thing. Ah oh, man it's tough there's there's so many things that i I want her to be and so many skills I want her to have if I had to pick like one it'd be a it'd be a rough a rough decision between toughness and empathy hmm. I really think that you need to be tough and um as a person who is in now senior leadership in in the military I see a lot of um young people that i it is my desire to instill toughness in them. And I think there's always this kind of like tug of war with that concept between like, are you, are you just being like an old person who doesn't understand how the world should be? And you think like, because it was like this when you were young, that it should be this way for everybody. And you don't want to be that guy. Right. But I, I don't want my daughter to be someone who's like easily offended or someone who can be emotionally impacted by, someone's words or even, even like minor actions. Like I want her to understand what, what things actually matter and are worth um, investing yourself in and what things you could just kind of ignore. For example, uh, like, you know, to, to bring it back to EQ, cause that's why we're all here. People will send me like crazy tells or talk trash about me frequently. And uh, when I was much younger, like a teenager leaving faceless, I used to get real bit out of shape about it. Um, but now I just kind of like, I think I almost like it now, Mm -hmm. but like, I definitely am not bothered by it anymore at all.
0: Right. Does it just feel small? Does it just feel like there's big things in this world and there's small things in this world
2: and that just goes in the small category? Yeah. I just like, you know, it doesn't, it just doesn't matter to me at all anymore. Um, In fact, I often find like the best thing I can do to, to continue to upset people who, who want to get a rise out of me is to simply not care. Mm -hmm.
0: okay so i I like that and i think about how do you instill toughness in people and because i i i kind of have the same thought with my son um and it's to make sure he has this toughness where he can handle falling it's kind of like if you get if you fall down i hope you get back up even if i'm not there type of thing right and so like uh do you just do you just Put them in situations where they have to be tough. Do you wait for situations where they have to be tough to happen, and then step back and let? How do you become tough? Is it do you just have to fall down and do you have to fail and get back up? Is that the only way to get tough, whether it's mentally or physically?
2: I I think yeah. i Honestly, I think there is only one path to toughness, and it's adversity. Yep, that's a lot of failure.
1: Or maybe maybe not failing, but it's a lot of attempting to do something and maybe succeeding and. Failings.
0: Okay, so I think one argument you hear against it, and I'm not necessarily I'm not arguing for this, but I think you can give a good perspective, especially being in the military and seeing people go through adversity. There's always the fear of what if I break this person, right? What if uh I let little Timmy right try to cross the street on his own and he gets whacked? Or what if it's less, you know, fatal <laughs> than that, but it's still like uh it's still not good and it's like it's a bad outcome for the kids, so. Did, I mean, does it, does this happen? Like, uh, I, I guess I'm asking you to, 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 to defend that, uh, devil's advocate stance.
2: No, I, uh, I, I think that you can, so that's the tricky thing. There's, there's a spectrum of adversity and too much adversity will not make you tougher. It will permanently make you weaker in some ways. I read this I book, um, that really hit me on it. You probably have read it in school or something night by Ellie Weasel. So that's like the story of uh, he was in he was in Auschwitz or one of you know or, or Birkenau one of the concentration camps, and he talks about how like there are things you go through in life that do not make you stronger; they permanently make you weaker. And reading that like kind of opened my eyes to that. There is a limit to what you can just kind of like bounce back from and improve. And sometimes uh, you are not the, the strong person after something no matter what you do. So you have to, um, you have to start people up. It's like lifting weights. You can't go in and say, I want to be Jay Cutler and you throw a thousand pounds on, on the squat rack. You'll just, you'll just break your back, right? You'll kill yourself. You have to do it inch by inch.
1: I think a ton of it has to do with um, support structure too. Like when you do actually fail, that there's somebody there to tell you, you know, or help you to say, yeah, it's okay. Get back up. Let's do it again. You know, let's try it a different way.
2: Yeah, I think it's important to be able to contextualize failure and understand uh, what real failure is because like, I mean, it's something I deal with right now in our training. Like we offer people an opportunity to fail in a very intense, highly pressured, but controlled environment. Mm. So real failure is this. Someone someone just died. Yeah. Um, most people do it's real failure as a consequence of their actions and that's good Um, and as long as you can provide people an opportunity to grow in that controlled environment um, where they experience the feeling of failure but not true failure which is something irrecoverable like the destruction of your house or your family or a life um, then i think you're probably going to be okay as long as you're able to get with them and contextualize things
0: so this is a question for both of you because you're both in leadership positions so if you see somebody you know failing and it's making them stronger but you know you also have to help them like you said sean do you really have to read the person like do some people need to be challenged even more and some people need to be coddled more do you need to feel it out or is it like sean said you kind of treat everybody the same and just say let's approach it differently the next way do you guys? believe in appro- trying to figure people out and approaching everybody differently?
2: You want to go first,
1: Sean? Sure. I do. I, I definitely approach every person. I mean, there's a general way that I approach them, but then a, a, as I get to understand them better, it it almost inevitably will open itself to me as far as what it is that, how it is I need to motivate them. But uh, oftentimes it ends up with me telling them that I will walk them to the precipice, I will let them lean over the precipice, but I will not let them fall into the precipice. And when they look back to see what it is that's holding them from falling into the precipice, it will be me. But I need them to have that experience of not being afraid to be at the edge and push themselves as far as they possibly can without going into the abyss.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good way to put it. I mean, like I just, uh, there are some people who you just have to approach a different way. And a big part of it is how tough they already are because people do not come to you with the same level of resiliency and some people will shut down and you can see it. And when they've shut down, you you pretty much have ended whatever kind of training session you're doing at least for a time being.
0: I'm curious if you can kind of tell right away, who has is more resilient or if people surprise you
2: often hmm yeah i don't know that's a good question i'm i think i'm often surprised in the reverse I'm, i'm like disappointed surprised like i'm like i thought i thought this guy would be tougher than this he's already quitting or he's he's crying about something very minor um rarely am i surprised like i thought this person was weak and they turned out to be strong Okay, do you guys have any advice to people
0: out there who try to become tougher? Is it you know I've heard one step at a time you know it's the like how do you eat an elephant one one bite at a time, or is it finding a happy place? It's like it doesn't matter how horrible the situation I'm in right now. I'm just gonna think about something nice and just overcome it mentally uh do Do you guys do anything
2: i I would say never seek a happy place. I perpetually seek things that make me uncomfortable like you do not find growth in comfort so um i mean i don't like public speaking and i have, i find myself constantly perpetually even in positions where i am engaged in public speaking and it only my audience has only grown as i've done it, and i don't know that i've become like more comfortable with it um but i have grown to not be afraid of the discomfort that comes with it
1: for me it- Points to anxiety. Um, When I find people that can break through and become stronger, um, it's almost always because of anxiety that was holding them back. And because I've dealt with that personally, I know what it looks like a little bit better. And when I can get people to move past it. um, And a lot of times it's directly related to what Sage was just talking about, about not trying to go to a happy place, but rather taking it on, like challenging whatever it is. Uh, and realizing that it doesn't have power over you uh, that i see the biggest change in in strength all right
0: i think we need to lighten it up before we wrap up here guys we've gotten pretty deep here i like it though i like a lot having these conversations with you zaid uh it's this is awesome. it's yeah I, I like it quite a bit um but let's let's lighten it up here um we're probably all starting to get hungry for dinner so food <laughs> zaid do you make food Oh man,
2: I've got the weirdest diet known to man. Okay. All right. Let's hear it. Uh this I'm gonna be like lampooned for this. <laughs> I I'm just like a like a super picky eater. I don't really eat uh much meat. I don't eat a lot of vegetables or fruit. Wait, what's left? Yeah, I mean Rice? that's a good question, right? Rice? Like I eat I eat like breads and eggs and like grilled chicken breasts and peanut butter. <laughs> Wait, what do you eat the peanut butter with? Straight
0: up or on the bread?
2: Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean,
1: this isn't far away from me for a long it's time not. in my life. Uh-uh, That's really not.
0: Okay. What kind of peanut butter are we talking? Do you have a f- brand?
2: Um, No, I'm not super picky. I've tried like a bunch of different ones i like there. i don't even know if it's jiff there's a jiff one there's a jiff one with like a white label it's got like low sugar low sodium i get that because of the low sugar i try to limit my sugar intake crunchy or creamy i used to be creamy but i tried crunchy like a year and a half ago and I really i really do mm-hmm. to it yeah
0: okay and then what about if it's dessert time do are there any sweets you like i
2: mean we just came off of halloween There's almost no sweet I dislike, which is why I have to stay away. So it's so dangerous to me.
0: (laughs) That's funny. What about you? What about you, Sean? What's your favorite Halloween candy? Did you snake any last night?
1: Oh man. You know, I don't know. Like I just see the hordes and hordes of stuff that comes. It kind of makes me feel sick. Just thinking about it, to be honest with you. Like I did, I started down that path. I went out for like, you know, an hour to walk with my daughter and then she was like, okay, get out of here. And, um, It was, yeah, I probably had like a Snickers or two. And then I was like, I can't do this. I just can't do this right now.
0: Well, I knew I was was grinding a shard with you. We got our fungus grove shard last night. And you know, I ate more than one or two. You heard how many I ate. And it was one wrapper after another.
1: You were taking M&Ms and smashing them into the Reese's peanut (laughs) butter cups just so you could get more into your mouth all at once. I don't understand you.
0: What's number one for you, Zaid? Are you going to be tempted with like a milkshake, a chocolate chip cookie, a gummy bear?
2: I guess like for the most conventional sweets, like the the standard candy variety, Reese's, specifically like the Reese's holiday variants, like the Reese's Christmas trees or the Reese's uh, eggs. Those are the best ones. Um, If we get into like more eclectic things, I guess like cupcakes and donuts. You know what? Actually, hands down, my favorite single dessert item, cookie cake. Oh, there it is. What is, yeah, what is it's that? It's like a giant cookie that is actually a cake. That's a brownie. You gotta, I don't know, you go to the, the bakery section of your local grocery <laughs> store, you'll see what I'm talking about. It's like a pizza that is a cookie. Okay. Oh my goodness. It's a big
1: ass
0: cookie. Okay.
2: But it's All like right. soft. It's super soft, and they put uh they put frosting on it.
0: Nice. Um what okay. Sorry, sorry, we you gonna say something there.
2: I'm just saying, don't
1: you're going to go get one tonight and take a picture of it. I know it. I can already see the picture coming. All
0: right. Um, I got one last one for you guys, and then I got to go make dinner for the fam. Um, how about, and this is again, both of you, your favorite childhood Halloween costume?
2: Hmm. Like the one that I wore, or like the one that was no, the no, the kid? one you wore,
0: when oh, you remember man. the most. Is there a photo you look at now as a kid, and you're like, "Oh my gosh, I was I was Boba Fett. That was pretty sweet."
2: Well, when I was a kid, my 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 dad was a musician, and uh, he was in like a a punk band, I guess. Anyway, uh, one year. I saw his costume before Halloween and I had, you know, when you're a little kid, like elementary school, you have to go through like those, those parades where you wear your Halloween costume and walk around.
0: Right.
2: <laughs> and he had basically like a slipknot costume, like with one of the full, like very expensive masks and all kinds of crazy stuff. And I was like, I basically guilted him into letting me wear it. How old were you? Again? I, I think I was in like third grade. So, <laughs> so like seven or eight you wanted to scare all the kids. Yeah, so I was like walking through this parade, everyone around me is like Power Rangers and and like Mortal Kombat <laughs> characters. I'm like a legit horrifying uh costume and it was it was awesome even then seeing like my teachers react. That's
0: awesome, Sean. I know you're a bunny these days, right? Every year you're a, he looks everybody he looks like the kid from the Christmas story. He literally has that outfit he wears it every year. It's kind of weird
1: it's not that weird. It makes my life really simple. Everybody knows who I'm going to be. It's, I show up the same. I don't I don't have to go shop or try to figure out what I'm going to dress up as. And I only have a few more years before I don't even have to do that anymore. Amazing. But I, I don't know, I, I was honestly trying to think about if I can even remember what I dressed up as I do remember my mom dressing me up as a hobo over and over again. And it kind of like stuck that yeah. look just kind of stuck for me. Yeah, so it think- did kind of that why you don't read deodorant well that's one of the reasons
0: love it all right man well uh, guys this was awesome zade fourth time we got to put the intro music to begin again this was awesome it's awesome being in your guild it's awesome having you on i love having serious conversations with you as well as EverQuest conversations and just the best of luck to you and everything you do and you and your family it's uh, it's
2: wonderful knowing you hey thank you so much it's been awesome hanging out with you guys thanks for having me on the show so many times and i love having you guys in the guild i hope you stick around for a long long time and we get to crush all kinds of uh weird alien and dragon life as we progress i'm looking forward to it i think
1: we just set a long-term goal it's about a five-year goal along with some of our other goals so that that sounds pretty perfect to me sounds like a lot of podcast content exactly that's what i'm talking about
0: all right. I'll see you guys in stall. Bye.
1: Yeah. Bye.